We're live. We're live. Welcome to the worst of the best podcast. You wanted the best. Well, they didn't freaking make it. So here's what you get from Canada Ryan and Ruben. Welcome to the Worst of the Best Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ruben, and this is Ryan, our other host here. Thank you, Ruben. It's good to be here. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're going to say anything. No, I was just thinking, uh, I was just hoping, I noticed that there's a little bit of lag in our live video, which is fine. I'm just hoping that when it's, when the dust settles, I don't know why there's a lag, but I'm not too, too worried about it. Nobody watches anyways. We're getting a good audio. That's all that matters. All right. <laughs> but anyways, go ahead. On this episode, we are going over hoaxes. That's right. The list that we're drawing from is the 14 greatest hoaxes. I, lo- I love a good hoax. No, nobody give, me, gets give me an example smart. that you think uh, that might not be on the list. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sure. Well, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, well, for, for the record, apparently I was supposed to read the list. We weren't going to bring this up on the air, but fine. Yeah, Ruben. But I thought I, I thought he was asking me to go in blind. My reading comprehension is off. My apologies. If, if I miscommunicate, that's my bad. No, no. I, I asked Ruben, did. did you read any of the hoaxes? He goes, no. I said, well, I'm glad I did because there's a lot of re- not research, but there's a little bit of um, things what? to know. Okay. Yeah. And it's like it, just to read it would be kind of boring for the listener and for the you know for ourselves. So Sure. I think back before television, there was a radio hoax about aliens landing. And oh, type yeah. Of invasion. That was by Orson Welles. Oh, was that who did it? Yeah. Orson Welles. That was the War of the Worlds. He gave... Like an audio brought, you can Google that. It's on. I mean, it's on YouTube. Yeah, he he talked about the aliens have landed. They destroyed the White House. He gave such a, a dramatic Orson Welles gave such a dramatic presentation. People mm. thought it was real. There was a real panic. It's hilarious. Love but it. But we're to talk about that, and this is actually important. Today's and this to be fair, we just had an episode about Trump, and one of the things that he likes to say is fake news. Uh huh. He's not wrong. What I mean by that is that the people, the public, the masses, and through no fault of their own, they can be tricked by false news. They sure. can be tricked by false claims. Absolutely. Because it can sound believable. It can make sense. And so they grab onto it and think, until someone says, no, we're just joking, or until maybe a conspiracy theorist comes by and says, no, this is what's happened, truthers, or whatever you want to call them. So yeah. that kind of falls into, when we get to these hoaxes, ladies and gentlemen, you'll say to yourself, well, I can't believe people fell for it. Is it so crazy to think that people fell for the alien invasion? No, I, uh, I'd love for that. So that one, that actually, that Orson Welles one wasn't part of this list, which... So that's a great example. So here we go. The 14 greatest ho- hoaxes of all time. This episode actually might come out near April Fool's Day, so it's only apropos that we speak about how April Fool's Day didn't get its name. This one's going to be a little bit of me reading because I think it's just easier to read, and there's no video of this. We're going to be utilizing YouTube today, so for those who are watching us live, it's really advantageous to watch this episode live, but if you're not, we'll try to describe what we're seeing as we're playing the videos. Okay. Okay. So, Joseph Boskin would tell you the origins of April Fools are murky. In fact, the Boston University professor and pop culture historian was trying to say just that in a 1983 interview with reporter Fred Bales. Okay, so this guy, this Boston University professor, was being interviewed for whatever reason by Fred Bales, a reporter. It was a 1983 interview. I couldn't find any video footage of this, unfortunately. But essentially, the guy asked Bales, Hey, how did April Fools start? So this was before Wikipedia. 
Sure. You know, before Google, people could just kind of Google it. Now, the average person, probably even today, if I asked you, how did April Fool start? I have no idea. Exactly. Okay. This reporter didn't know either, so he asked the professor, hey, how did it start? So off the top of his head, Boskin began regaling Bales with a tale from the days when Constantine ruled Rome. Jesters, he said, petitioned the emperor to allow one of their own the chance to rule for just one day. I've heard this before. Okay. So on April 1st, Constantine relented. A jester, King Kugel, and Boskin named him for the Jewish pudding dish, took (laughs) over and and proclaimed that April 1st would always serve as 24 hours of silliness. So this professor just rattled this off at the top of his head, and he purposely made the story so absurd that he figured the reporter would have to catch on. But no dice. The reporter uh, treated it like it was real yeah. and reported such AP, the Associated Press. Yeah. Once the truth was out, the AP, of course, was predictably embarrassed, but the story has a happy ending. Bales, no longer an eager reporter, is now a professor of journalism himself at BU, where he can speak from personal experience about the media's gullibility. So sure. lesson learned. Well, yeah. So even the media gets tricked by lies. And so sometimes it's not the media telling the lies. The media is reporting the lies they've been told. Sure. So sometimes it's not just fake news or Fox News or faux news or CNN. They're only able to tell what they're being told. Sure. You know, this one's kind of fun. This is called the birth of the bathtub. See, it's kind of the same idea as April 1st. Did you know, Ruben, that the bathtub was born on December 20th? I did not know that. So it's on this calendar. It's just another winter day, but it's actually that's best known for not being Christmas. But in 1917, writer H.L. Menchkin uh, set out to change that. So when the readers of the New York Evening Mail, a very up-to-date paper, when they opened the paper in late December, they found an 1,800-word essay by Menchkin. It's called The Neglected Anniversary. Okay? And what this anniversary was about is it was detailing the arrival of the bathtub in the United States. Wow. <laughs> And Mencken meticulously cataloged the tub's rocky debut in 1842, explaining how the bathroom fat had caught on only after Mildred Fillmore installed one into the White House. And by the 20th century, Mencken explained the momentous anniversary had fallen into obscurity. Quote, not a plumber filed a salute, he lamented. Not a governor proclaimed a prayer. (laughs) Readers had good reason to believe that this was not made up because it was in the evening mail. Because it was printed in this mail, yeah, but sure. learned journalists and people who you know spot these things said, "Whoa, this is not right. This is not true." <laughs> and he eventually admitted that that he did set the record straight. But his efforts, even though he said this is this is a joke, his efforts were futile. People were more interested in hearing about President Fillmore's tub than hearing the truth. I believe that. Think about what that means for a second. I.e., flat earthers. Even doesn't matter what kind of evidence you have. It's more fun to believe in Santa Claus sometimes. And that's fine. There's no harm in this. We, Ruben, you mentioned at the beginning of the show that hoaxes in this way, there's no, no, one, no one got hurt. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe your pride. Sure. Maybe that you were gullible and got yeah. tricked. But no real person got injured or hurt. Yeah. During, okay. Now that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, 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 he yeah. wrote an 1800-word essay <laughs> detailing how the bathtub became popular. There's nothing I have said or done written. They'll ever catch on. They'll ever catch on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So, have you, Ruben, have you ever heard of the uh, Pilton Man? I have not. Okay. Oh, so, the Pilt, the Pilt Down Men. Oh, him. Yes. Okay. No, I haven't. What this was is, in 1912, an amateur geologist and archaeologist named Charles Dawson found a skull. And mm. the skull he pulled from a gravel pit in Pilton, England, seemed, seemed, at the time, conclusively fit the part of the missing link 
of Neanderthal, the man, whatever that link was. So there was that missing link in the evolutionary chart that was missing. Okay. This skull was that missing that missing link. Okay. okay. Now we're just going to listen to a little video about this because uh, I think it explains it just as well, if not better than what I just did. It is right. In England in 1911, there was a hugely effective hoax involving a skull called the Piltdown Man. For a hot minute, or actually 40 years, it was the most famous skull in the world because people thought it was the missing fossil link between humans and apes. It wasn't until 1953 that things got real embarrassing for all the scientists involved. A paleontologist thought that the jaw in school seemed a little strange. So he performed a flooring test on the different parts of the fossil and learned that, whoops, that is the jaw of an orangutan and that is the skull of a human. Turns out the pieces were purposefully put together, presumably by Charles Dawson, archeologist who found it. Reputations were tarnished, outrage throughout the land. That sneaky bastard. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> so this guy took different parts of bones to create like a man-ape jawline and face. Wow. That's yeah. pretty uh, gutsy. That's a hoax. He fooled people for a long time was, until people it, were it, able to run tests that... Was it a hoax done for the purpose of gotcha or the hoax to further his career? Good question. But this is for yeah. close to 40 years. Like he would have gone down to the grave with this. Oh, we don't know. We actually Dawson was the prime suspect because he found the skull. Oh yeah, that's a problem. But there are some who think it might have been Sir Arthur Conan Doyle who did it, the author of Sherlock Holmes, because not only was Conan Doyle a member of Dawson's Archaeological Society and a frequent visitor to Pilton site, he hinted in his novel The Lost World that faking bones is no tougher than forging a photograph, the ultimate smoking gun. Interesting. So they kind of collaborated too. And so there it was in plain sight that there was a joke the whole time. Oh, hilarious. Love if, it. Again, no one got hurt except for people's <laughs> pride and believing it. All right. So the next one. Uh, this one's great. Italy's uh, secret pasta gardens. I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where does spaghetti come from, Ruben? Well, in April 1st, 1957, the BBC news program Panorama tackled the question with a segment about a Swiss town's robust spaghetti crop brought on by a warm spring and the disappearance of the spaghetti weevil. Oh. Now, I found some footage of that BBC I've, coverage. I've seen the footage. It's great. Okay. But what, you may ask, has the early and welcome arrival of bees and blossom to do with food? Well, it's simply that the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavor and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. <laughs> I love it. Spaghetti cultivation here in... What I, what I love is you got people actually playing the role. Sure. As you just pick it like you would pick apples off a tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're, yeah. Not, they're keeping straight faces... Like, this is 1950s. I kind of like seeing... I know it sounds trite, but I like seeing the sense of humor. Sure, absolutely. In the 1950s. Yeah. Like, this is like almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. It, it just shows you that humans have been funny and silly for a long time. Yeah, ever since uh, Constantine. Ever since Constantine. With, uh, King uh, Kegel? King, King Krugel. Oh, Krugel. The Jewish pudding. In Switzerland is not, of course, carried out on anything like the tremendous scale of the Italian industry. Many of you, I'm sure, will have seen pictures of the vast spaghetti plantations in the Po Valley. For the Swiss, however, it's it like laying it out of the basket. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. So the, for those who are listening to this on iTunes and are not seeing the first, come to our come to Facebook and our YouTube channel where these videos can be found. So you can see Ruben and I in our, in our beautiful podcast faces. See the videos that we're talking about. For those who just can't handle live shows, which I understand, you actually see noodles hanging from a tree. It's perfect. And these noodles are being picked like you would an apple off a tree, and they're laying them in the they're laying the noodles flat in the basket, ready to be cooked. How else would you do it? It's the only way to when you're picking noodles, lay them flat in the basket, as shown in this video. The next one. So this one here is kind of interesting. I don't think I've got. A, do I have a video on this? Stand by. I don't have a video on this. Let me just get into it. Everyone knows you can't judge a book by its cover, but the aphorism got an extra dose of validity in 1969 when Penelope Ash, a bored Long Island housewife, wrote the trashy sensation Naked Came the Stranger. Wow. So, and she did a book tour. A real person did this book tour. I was trying to find video or any kind of radio interviews. Okay. But this did happen. This female named Penelope Ash went on tour with this book in hand promoting the book so this is not a hoax this did happen okay but this is very andy kaufman okay, okay. so she's doing this uh so she appeared on talk shows i couldn't find any video and made the bookstore rounds but ash wasn't what her book jacket claimed the author herself was a fictional as fictional as the novel she supposedly wrote okay and both were the work of mike mcgrady a newsday columnist disgusted with the lurid state of the modern bestseller at the time so instead of complaining, he decided to expose the problem by writing a book of zero redeeming social value and even less literary merit. So he enlisted 24 of his Newsday colleagues. And they basically they all chipped in and wrote short stories and chapters for this book. When he got their edits, he, he actually chopped them down and made them sound even worse than they were. Because they were too good by these Newsday writers. Okay, fair But enough. he told them, make it trashy, make it, make it terrible, make it... He instructed them that there should be an unremitting emphasis on sex. And he also warned that the true excellence in writing will be quickly blue-penciled into oblivion. So he's saying, if you write too good, I'm going to erase it. Uh, so I want a tawdry, terrible book. So how did this book do? Well, by the time that Grady revealed his hoax a few months later, the novel had already moved 20,000 copies. Far from the sinking the book's prospects, the press pushed sales even higher. So once it got exposed, this uh -huh. was just a... We're trying to write a terrible novel here. Yeah, you sales, just hired me. Sales went up to 100000 Wow. And spent 13 weeks on the Times bestseller list. And as of 2012, the tomb had sold nearly half a million copies. Wow. <laughs> and now after people listen to our show, you know that... Oh, that <laughs> yes, you can also be in on the joke. That's right. All right, the next one. This one's pretty interesting. Long story short, there is a astronomer... He wrote six articles in a ragtag magazine called The Sun. It was six articles published 1835 about the discovery of civilization on the moon. So in this six-piece article, which I have not read, it was written by John Herschel, and he had a new powerful telescope to spot plants, unicorns, bipedal beavers, and winged humans there. Hilarious. And the articles even went a step further, claiming that our angelic moon brother and collected fruit, built temples from sapphire, and lived in total harmony. Total harmony. I yeah, love that. Yeah. So this was 1835, but the hoax was debunked immediately, you think? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. But the American public preferred a universe with dotted angels and unicorns and bedazzled architecture. The story created such a buzz that papers around the world rushed to reprint it, while a theater company in New York worked out a dramatic staging. So again, it just shows the humans our need. This kind of speaks into our political climate. Maybe the need, not for the truth, but just for what we want to hear or what the government or people thinks we sure. need to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how quickly we are to say, yeah, that's the ticket. 
Yeah. That's the ticket. All right. Crazy. Number seven. Is a hoax still a hoax if the perpetrator doesn't know it? So basically, this guy, Wilhelm von Austin, had a horse, and the horse was able to do math. Oh, yeah. I know this one. <laughs> okay. This. And so the horse would look at the guy, uh-huh. and he'd be able to stop his, you know, four plus four, the horse was, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. eight, or whatever the answer was with the simple math problems that, that yeah. the man gave the horse. Well... How this was exposed was is that they had the horse turn around. The guy was giving hand signals that he trained the horse to, to make certain movements. So, like with his face, so if he like rubbed his nose, that was a movement to stomp your foot eight times. Uh-huh. To tug on, you know, to scratch his ear was to make the the horse stomp three times. So he'd give the question, but he stomp sure. his ear or whatever it was. And so once they had somebody else ask the questions or turn the horse around, of course the horse can't perform uh-huh. the stomping of the feet with the correct answers to the math questions. So that's the harmless. He's just horsing around. He's, hey, <laughs> nay, go there. Now, Riven, have you ever heard of the supergroup? You must have heard of these guys, the Mass Marauders. I have not. Are you kidding me, Ruben? The Mass Marauders was a supergroup featuring Bob Dylan, know him, Mick Jagger, heard of him, John Lennon, yeah, and Paul McCartney. Now, how awesome would it be to have that supergroup? Pretty great. Well, they exist. Almost as good as the Traveling Wilburys. <laughs> almost. Here's the thing. They didn't form a band, but this hoax that they were going to form a band Mm -hmm. became so popular. As you can imagine, the band, like Bob Dylan, Rolling Stone, the Beatles join up. Everybody's like, we got to have this. People again wanted this. So the record company said, we got to do something about this. The the people need this. So the fans were so desperate to get their hands on a Mass Marauders album. So rather than fess up, Marcus, who started the hoax, dug in his heels and took the prank to the next level. He recruited an obscure San Francisco band, rock and roll band, to record a spoof album, then scored a distribution deal with Warner Brothers, and after a little radio promotion, the Master Marauders self-titled debut sold 100,000 copies. It's real. The Master Marauders have an album. That's hilarious. Under the guise of Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And here we go. Here is a sample of the Master Marauders album. This song is called I Can't Get No Nookie. Exactly what you think Nookie is. I have no idea what it Limp is. Biscuit, I did it all for the Nookie. What? I think it's just sex. One. But here we go, the math Marauders. Take two. There should be a cover band. <laughs> there should be a cover band for the Master Marauders. Yes, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, so in a weird way, it's a real band, but sure. it's performing under the guise of Mick Jagger, Hilarious. Bob Dylan, and John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And they got hey. a singer that sounded like Mick Jagger. All right, here we go. The Virginia Wolf ships out. So on this one here, it was uh, in 1910, the HMS Dreadnought was the fiercest, strongest Dreadnought, sorry, was the fiercest, strongest ship in the Royal Navy. To the poet William Horace de Vere Cole, it seemed like the perfect place for the Bloomsbury Group, kind of like, what do you call that? Uh, the Harvard the, Group? Yeah. Uh, or Second City? Yeah, the other one. Um, the, the, the National the Lapoon. Harvard no, Lapoon? No, uh, the oh, the one that people, comedies, comedies go to for... Second City. No, as you, you'll know when you hear it. I know Second City is one as well. Conan went to it, uh, Lisa Kudrow went to it. They all went to this, I just listened to some interviews with them. Okay, we'll say Second City for now, but it's going to drive me crazy. You but can just, improv troupe. 
Yeah, an improv troupe. Okay. I know Second City probably is one, but there's another one, I swear. Okay. This uh, group called the Bloomsbury Group, they were kind of like socialites, comedians, authors. Mm-hmm. So they thought it'd be funny if they dressed up like some royal guard or some royal country, people from a country, and they were the royalty for this country. But not only were they not that, the country isn't real. The Groundlings. The Groundlings. I knew it once I heard it. Okay. The old version of the Groundlings called the Bloomsbury Group. The three pals decided to sneak aboard the Dreadnought, disguised as the Emperor of Abysmia and his entourage. Mm-hmm. Why risk the wrath of the Royal Navy? Because it was funny. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they thought it would be funny. Yeah. So the group sent a phony telegram, like almost like an email, right? Sent a phony telegram to the ship's commander, letting him know that a delegation was en route at that moment. And then they simply showed up on the ship. They arrived. So we're on our way for the Royal Delegation for Abysmia. We are here. And so amazingly worked, dressed in captains, turbans, and gold chains, and with faces painted black. Uh, hey now. Hey now. The Abyssinians were welcome aboard the Dreadnought with an honor guard, a red carpet, and a naval band. Hilarious. Hilarious. Despite the intentionally amateurish costumes, including at least one mustache that began falling off in the rain, <laughs> the Abyssinians stayed in character for the entire tour, and when they spoke, it was either to ex- exclaim, Bunga Bunga, in excitement... <laughs> Or ramble in an invented language of Latin, Swahili, and gobbledygook. At one point, they were forced to decline a meal relaying through Stephen, who was acting as a translator, that the food had not been prepared to their specifications. In reality, they just didn't want to eat because they were afraid their makeup would come off. Hilarious. So the tour ended without the crew suspecting a thing, but then reporters got wind of it. And, of course, investigation happened. There is no country of Abysmia. Yeah. <laughs> the British papers had a field day. <laughs> With the story, sailors were heckled with cries of bunga bunga <laughs> in the streets, and King Edward himself made his displeasure with the incident known. In the face of such humiliation, the Navy was forced to take action. According to contemporary accounts, the Navy got its revenge by caning two of the male hoaxers. Caning? They got caned. Brutal. They got beaten. Wow. Caned? Yeah. But Wolf, Virginia Wolf, the, uh, the female, was spared last because she was a woman. Hey, what about equal rights? Uh, even though a lady's mere presence on the ship was one of the greatest sources of the Navy's embarrassment, because this was the time that women did not uh, come on board a ship. Yeah, yeah. So it was a combination of the hoax, they were tricked, and they had a woman on board. It sounds like they're probably pretty upset about the black facing. They were ups- more upset about the black face, yeah. yes. They weren't. Eventually, though, the Royal Navy has developed a sense of humor about the event. I'm glad they've done it, especially after caning yeah, people. Yeah, after getting caned. Uh, so when the Dreadnought rammed and sank a German submarine during World War One, its crew received a congratulated telegram from their superior saying, Bunga Bunga. Hilarious. I think that's a great. That's great. That's a huge one, eh? Yeah. Uh, this one will kind of just breeze over a little bit. It's just not, not that it's not funny, but this guy named Joey Skaggs, you can Google it. He was a well-known prankster in the 70s. He basically... Uh, started a prank where he ran an ad in the Village Voice offering dog owners a chance to buy their pets at night with alluring companions, including Fifi, the French poodle. Again, to Skag's surprise, but should we be surprised at today's internet and, no, oh, and how it's exposed humanity? Let's yeah. just be honest. Because yes. the internet hasn't created the issues. The internet has only exposed that which has always been. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. He got $50 offers. Bring uh, my dog spot bucks. over. I'll bring my dog spot over for fifty bucks, which back then was probably two hundred dollars. Yeah, and to make love to Fifi because my you know spots had a rough spell. Crazy. So he created a dog bordello. It didn't take much for the media to bite, and when reporters showed up with questions, Skag reeled them in by staging a night at his cat house for dogs. The stunt worked. TV stations issued breathless reports of the wanton acts of carnine carnality. 
The SPCA, of course, launched an investigation, and the veterinarian publicly condemned the brothel, and the New York Health Department raised concerns about Skaggs' licensing. <laughs> he didn't have a license. There was no bordello. That's hilarious. But all this manpower and work was brought in by this hoax. I feel inspired. <laughs> Think just, of a hoax? Yes. WABC New York argues that the brothel was real. They couldn't let it go. They thought it was real. Even the news, they got lied to, but they were so had such egg on their face... They claim that Skaggs hoax claims are just a clumsy attempt to cover his trail. Oh. So they were saying that he was lying about yeah, it being a hoax yeah, yeah. because he was going to get in trouble with these other agencies. Uh-huh. But of course, WABC was good reason to insist that Skaggs was running the genuine poodle prostitution ring because the station won an Emmy for its coverage of the story. Sure. So is that interesting? They're like, oh no, it was a real story. We won, we won an Emmy. They didn't want to have egg on their face yeah, after winning yeah. it. Yeah. Hilarious. Okay, here we got some video. This is where having video comes into play. Do you want to go to our... Uh, I think we're live, right? We are live, but somebody actually commented. Our good friend Jason Gady commented, so I just want to make sure we say, hey, thank you. He said... Oh, you already laughed at it, or somebody did. He said, would the plant be considered a tree or just a tall shrub? Do you have information on growth zones for this crop? So, Jason, are you just regarding the pasta growth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to look into that. Uh, I'll have to use Google uh, to figure out how we can... Google. how. To, to how we can research. No, the, man, you got to use Bing. Use Bing. Sorry, we'll use Bing to uh, figure out how we can uh, grow we'll more just, pasta. Let me just Bing that right now. Okay, so here we go. Uh, MIT blows up Harvard. So MIT students derived a great pleasure from tormenting their rivals at Harvard. So our favorite prank of theirs, according to this article, occurred during the 1982 Harvard-Yale football game when a weather balloon emblazoned with letters MIT began emerging from the ground near the 50-yard line. It came out of the ground. Wow. Yeah, so here's the video. So again, this is where it benefits you people to watch us live. Here's the video for our viewers. Let's give a play by play. Yeah, I'll describe it really quick. Uh, I don't want to describe it just yet because it'll spoil those who are about to watch it. Okay. Suddenly it happened. A balloon with MIT written all over it popped out of the turf at the 46-yard line and grew and grew and grew. The question is of why. Who and how? <laughs> well, why? Because it's funny. <laughs> Who? MIT <laughs> text. And how? Well, they explain it later in this video. So if you want to go on YouTube and search Great MIT Balloon Hack of 82, they explain how they got onto the field from an opposing school, put the contraption under the ground, had it open up into the field. The game was being played on at this time. Amazing. And somebody said, well, what happened that balloon blew up next to somebody? There was nothing, there was all, everything in there was harmless. It was just a big balloon that popped. Hilarious. To make some powder go off. Now, if that happened today. Oh my gosh. All these whole, yeah, you're going to jail. This is 82. Like, this is in our lifetime. Sure, yeah. Because so we've gone from 1982 to 2019, then now you would have been charged with the terrorist act. Yeah. <sighs> it's too bad. I know. Because nobody got hurt. The terrorists won again. The terrorists won again. Trump, take care of those terrorists. Actually, this one here is called Grease in the Wheels. Mm-hmm. So back in the late 19th century, college teams took trains to get to road games, obviously. So this is late 1800s. And the Auburn team took full advantage of the situation. So for a few seasons, the students ran Greece along the train tracks before Georgia Tech games, making it impossible for the train to stop anywhere near the station. <laughs> uh, so the train put on its brakes and just kept sliding. So year after year, the poor football team ended up lugging its gear a number of miles back to the station, giving the players more of a warm-up than they bargained for and tilting the games in Auburn's favor. That's funny. This is the 1800s. That's funny. Again, nobody got arrested. This is tomfoolery. 
If they did it year after year, then... I'm sure somebody figured out eventually, but... Uh... <laughs> okay, here we go. Another video one. Here we go. Tricking opposing fans, another football game, into holding up placards that spell out a hidden message is a prank older than time. But it was perfected with the great Rose Bowl hoax of 1961, during which students altered the placards given to the University of Washington fans so that the giant banner that they formed read Caltech instead of anything regarding the Washington University on live television. Hilarious. So here's video footage of that. The Great Rose Bowl hoax. January 2nd, 1961. The University of Washington was playing the University of Minnesota for the national championship. And at halftime, one of the great traditions of college football, card stunts. I don't know how that could have worked much better. Reg Clemens was a student at Caltech at the time. He and a few classmates orchestrated a subtle change during the University of Washington's card show. We were all a little bit panic-stricken until it finally hit the air. You know, you figured somebody's going to find out. Somebody's going to figure it out. At a time when Washington was supposed to be spelled out in the stands, the cards instead read Caltech. It was a feat that took hours of work and near-perfect execution. Clemens and a friend had to break into the dorm housing Washington's cheerleaders oh, wow. and change thousands of index cards with directions on them. It's just getting by with the whole thing. It's just amazing. This is a picture Reg Clemens was able to take from his TV screen. The Caltech prank made national. News. I have a suit box in the other room full of clippings that relatives sent from all over the country. <laughs> uh, the Caltech prank. And though he doesn't watch the Rose Bowl much anymore, Reg Clemens says what he did at that game is something he'll never forget. We were all definitely proud of it. That's great. That's great. Isn't that great? It is. It really I love how he took a picture of his prank on his camera. He had yeah. a 1961 camera. He came live. He got, I got it. Yeah. Because he wouldn't know until that moment if it worked. No. It's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> so they replaced all the cards in the proper order. Nobody checked that they had been tampered with, and they came out as Caltech instead of Washington State University. That's fantastic. Hats off. Hats off. So the fans of Washington did that. <laughs> <laughs> that is the original best prank ever caught on TV. Okay, last hoax, Ruben. Have you ever heard, Ruben, of the... Absolutely. <laughs> Have you really? Oh, yeah, 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 Okay, so this is the elusive Northwest tree-dwelling octopus. Yeah, I know all about it. So according to the species' official website, the Pacific Northwest tree octopus is native to the rainforest of Washington State's Olympic Peninsula. Boy, poor Washington State, eh? Yeah. It spends most of its time frolicking on treetops <laughs> and snacking on frogs and rodents. But today, the arboreal cephalopod faces extinction. What? Thanks to rampant predation by the Sasquatch. Oh, freaking Sasquatch. So if you guys don't believe me, again, I can't say enough how to, you got to come to our channel. If you don't believe me, here we go. Here's video proof of the tree octopus caught on tape. Now, there's no, there's no audio, really. We get some grainy image here. It's an older video. I'd say it's probably 1975, 1980 video footage, Ruben. What do you think? They probably just got a, an octopus from the... No, no, Ruben, so... I mean, yes, uh, sorry, so, yes. So the footage, come on now. The footage here is about, you know, 1969, 72. Uh, it, it was filmed with the same camera with Sasquatch. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He probably got the same footage of the Sasquatch coming to eat mm -hmm. the, the uh, octopus in the tree. Now, that would be quite a horrific sight, don't you think? To see that? Yeah, if that jumped at you. Yeah. Oh, the guy's chuckling. Well, he thinks it's funny. It's not funny. Some people, when they're nervous, they'll, they'll laugh. So there's an octopus in a tree. That's something you don't see every day. <laughs> All right, Ruben, which one's the worst? The least funniest? The least wow? Or how would you argue the worst for this? Uh, yeah. Least... Like, the Caltech, that's great. Yeah. 
<laughs> the train um, one's pretty screeching the wheels. That's very funny. <laughs> the balloon's great. Fantastic. But the, the dog one's funny because it's so simple and it really got people. The station won yeah, an Emmy, yeah, so yeah. That, yeah, the results were good on that one. Absolutely. And the the Virginia Wolf, who she, yeah. her and her group went <laughs> from Abysnia, bunga bunga. <laughs> It's a, yeah, bunga bunga. That's like good. this prank cannot be pulled in today's climate. No, 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 no. Let's just make that clear. We're not condoning blackface. We're just saying. Can you imagine that happened on your ship? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. We would be the laughing stock if it, if we got <laughs> if we got yeah. Well, I'm on a ship, so if we got tricked by a, a fake nation uh-huh. and we did the same thing, people would never let it down. Absolutely. Wow. Oh yeah, we would be in the in the seal would be in so much trouble. Caned. <laughs> uh, the Marauders love the Master Marauders. That's great. The horse, life on the moon. The laundry. You know what? I'm going to go with... Boy, they're all so good. I, I got mine. I think I got mine, too. Mine is... I'm taking mine with how many people were affected and how hard did it take to be pulled off. So I think I'm just going to go with the horse. Kind of a tie between the life on the moon, but people, again, created theater for this. But I think mine is the horse just because... Um, yeah, you know, he taught a horse how to clomp his feet around and just told people he was doing math. A good little magic trick, a little parlor trick, really, at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, mine's the tree octopus. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. I guess I guess because it's so crazy. But for, but for yeah. the horse, like, they want a tour. Yeah, you know what you're you right. You know what I mean? Like, people were in stands watching this. <laughs> right. You're right. If I'd use my own... <laughs> fooled a lot of people and he made money and he went on sure, tour. Yeah, yeah. The octopus is so outrageous that could anyone believe this? You're right. I'm going to go with the fact that the the octopus is so outrageous that it can't. It, it could even possibly be true. Yeah, it's just a fun thing that lives on the internet. Right. All right, everyone. Thanks for watching. And remember, in front of every silver lining, there's a cloud, and we're here to help you find that. Remember to re- review and, and like us on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes. Give us a review. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching. Hey, by the way, I think yeah. one of our best episodes, and I did no work. Thank you, Ryan. Oh yeah, you did all the reading. Uh, I, I I was just a listener. I'm sorry, Rube. I should have been more clear. No, 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 no. You probably were clear. There's nothing to apologize for. Okay. I, I thought it went great. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Rube. Thank all right. You.